Good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to John 17? We've been in uh, John 17 the last number of weeks. Uh, as, we, as you go there, just want to uh, make you aware... Uh, tonight, 6 o'clock, uh, we have a leadership lab We're doing a few of these this year. Uh, leadership lab is, is one of the ways in which we're trying to uh, just foster, uh, equip uh, leaders among us uh, with the ministry tools to lead well, whether it's life group leaders or worship leaders or youth leaders. There's just a lot of ministry tools that aren't really specific to a, a ministry as much as it is um, general ministry uh, gift, gifts and abilities and, and learning uh, how to lead in the church. And so we have Chris Douglas from the C2C Network coming this evening. The C2C Network is uh, the MB Mennonite Brethren uh, church planting arm of our conference. And uh, he's going to be talking about building a co- cohesive team around trust and vulnerability that, that contributes to overall health and vitality. So this is really great for small group leaders and all, all kinds of leaders, just how we have a healthy dynamic and create healthy culture within groups that, that helps people grow and know one another well. So it's going to be a good night. Who needs to see Tom Brady come back and win anyways, Right. Super Bowl. We know what's going to happen. We're all going to loathe it, except for the three people that love New England. We're just going to be like, ah, anything but him, it's going to happen anyway. So just come to the lab. When Justin Timberlake starts singing, I don't know why I just said his name in church. When he starts singing, turn it off, come to the lab. You're welcome to come if you lead here, if you're interested in leading at some point at Central. We just want to have you. Looking forward to seeing you tonight. Um, just catch you up on John 17. Um, we've been in it for a few weeks. Uh, there's a few dynamics to this prayer. If we could, if we could do headings over again, um, it would probably be better to go back into Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel and call the Lord's prayer the disciples' prayer because it's a model prayer Jesus gives for disciples to pray. It's really the disciples' prayer, you know, uh, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then we could call this in John 17 the Lord's prayer because this is Jesus' prayer to the Father. But it is, uh, has come to be known more as the high priestly prayer. And uh, in the first uh, five verses, we see Jesus praying for himself. In the sense that Jesus was praying, glorify me. Like that's what he's praying to the Father. Glorify me so that I can glorify you. And what Jesus means by that is he's talking about displaying the goodness of God and bringing rebellious sinners into a saving relationship with him. He knows that that will bring glory to God. So may that glory be displayed through the Son, Jesus is praying. Then he goes on in verses 6 through 19 to essentially pray that these disciples of his, and by those, by disciples I mean those ones at that present time he was praying, that they may be kept that they may be kept in the word by the word of God and that they may be kept by the Father from the evil one, from walking away, that they may be kept. And now in this final section of the prayer, Jesus is praying for all believers for all time. He's praying ahead for those who will believe, not might, but those he knows will come to faith in him. So he's praying for us here. So let's read the prayer. And I believe it's going to become apparently clear as we read what the, what the major push, what the major thing that Jesus is praying for us for in these verses. John 17, verses 20 to 26. I do not ask for these only, that's those disciples of Jesus at that time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even, or loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That the Father might be in the Son, that the Son might be in us, that we might display Jesus to the world. And this main push, this prayer that Jesus is coming back to over and over and over again, make them one as we are one, Father. And so we are going to dig into that this morning. Let's pray and then let's unpack together. Jesus, we want to discover more and more what it means to be the body of Christ, to be your followers, to be a disciple of Jesus, and what it means collectively for us to be one. Thank you that as we seek to discover that, we know you're praying it for us. You prayed it and you continue to pray it for your people. Make us one. Make us one in you. Lord, I pray that... um, Everything of you, everything just flowing from this text, that these, these big truths would sink into our hearts today. We don't want to just intellectually know that we're supposed to get along. We want to be one in spirit and in truth. Oh, Lord, we ask for you to do that work in this teaching time, and we ask you to do this work in our church corporately as we carry on. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, the unity believers share is not lowest common denominator theology, rather a common commitment to the truth. The unity believers share is not lowest common denominator theology, rather a common commitment to the truth. We see in verse 20 that that, that Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, my current disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Last week... Verse 17 told us in the text, sanctify them in the truth. Your word, Father, is truth. The word of God is truth. Your word, and now we're hearing about their word, meaning the disciples' word, the apostles' word, um, that, that that will be what God uses. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It is through the word proclaimed that we come to faith in the first place. The message of the gospel, the work and the ministry and the words of Jesus, what he accomplished for us, the apostles were entrusted with, right? This band of disciples that that Jesus raised up to lead the early church. And so they, they proclaimed this message to the ends of the earth, to the nations, They went and proclaimed, and they also wrote it down that the word of God might be proclaimed on and on and on, that we might believe in Jesus and therefore um, be Christ's. 
So Jesus is praying for those who will believe according to the gospel proclaimed through the apostles. Our unity began when we heard the truth about God conveyed through the word of the apostles, and our unity continues based on that truth. There's, a, there's something that we are unified in, and it's the truth about Jesus. It's the gospel. This is what John the apostle said in 1 John 1, 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. What they've seen and heard about Jesus, the message of the gospel, what they know to be true, the truth, so that you too, he goes on to say, may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. How does this fellowship happen? Well, it happens in our common belief about the same things, the truth about Jesus. That's where our unity lands. So that's important because there's a temptation that exists for us as the church, as our church central and the church at large. There's a temptation here at this point that once saved, let's stay away from contentious theological issues. If there is the potential for divisions over hard truths, let's tiptoe around those for the sake of unity. That, that's, that's a very real temptation. I, I, I know people in ministry that have that temptation. Like, oh, I can't touch that issue, right? It'll cause disunity in the church. I know that temptation when I get particular texts that are next on my preaching, you know, and I, like, I, I we're going through a book of the Bible and I get some verses and I'm like, ah, I just know, like, I'm not ecstatic to preach about something I know may have, be contentious to people. See, the, the, the thing is, is that we're all sinful people, and there are truths that our hearts don't want to hear. They may be true, but we're not in a place to hear them. We push back on them. We don't like them, right? right? We grind against that, and so there's that, that stuff's going on. And so the temptation is, ooh, that's a hot button one. Let's move around that. Ooh, that, one's, that one some people might not like. Let's move around there. And before you know it, there's so many landmines in the scriptures that we're just like, you know what? We all love Jesus generically, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Let's stay there. Pretending that's Christian unity when in fact it is not. See, the problem with that is that our unity flows from a mutual commitment to the word of God right? Not tiptoeing around major portions of it or doctrines of it. The, word, the apostles recorded everything that God wanted us to know through this special revelation, his word. D.A. Carson says as much, unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel. This is ground zero for being the body of Christ. It means that we are all committed to the truth, the truths revealed in the scriptures, that we have this tenacity about the word, shoulder to shoulder, digging into God's word, longing to know it, longing to be changed, longing to be sanctified by it, longing to grow. Like, it's just like, ooh, this one's tough. Let's talk about it in life group. So, you know, like, like work it in. And we're going to talk about how we disagree on some stuff as we go here this morning. See, what D.A. Carson is saying here is, look, let's not settle for a cheap unity, right? Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace as opposed to costly grace or cheap discipleship as opposed to costly discipleship. It's kind of a cheap unity under the surface here that we could settle for, which means we don't really talk about anything, or we can strive for a deep unity that says we'll wrestle these things through together and we will be committed to what Jesus 
has entrusted to the apostles to carry on for our growth and our knowledge. I mean, this is how, how, why we see such profound impact in the early church. We read about it in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Square one, first point. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, right? To being a community, Christian community, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe because of those commitments and what God was doing through those. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. What we see in these few verses is the unity of the church and the commitment to the word. And they flourished. Um, In Ephesians chapter 4, I'll start in verse 11 and then I'll work my way back and we'll show some verses on the screen in a minute. But in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, all of these leaders in the church have that common um, gift and mandate to be truth proclaimers, to share the truth in ways that, that help the body. And it says that much when it says, um, to equip the saints, that's all believers, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The body is built up as, 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 these, as the word of God is taught and impressed on people until we all attain to the unity of the faith. There's a unity in his word and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. We mature through this growth and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, so it's holding these things together, a striving for the unity of the faith well, teaching, continuing to, to grow believers in their maturity and their walk with him. And that's, of course, all through the apostolic teaching. Now, let's go back to Ephesians 4, verse 1, where we can zero in on um, the essentials that I think Paul makes, is really helpfully making clear here. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we should be, we should be eager to strive for unity among us. And while saying that, Paul gets really clear. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. When he says one faith, he's talking about the faith that the apostles preached, that Jesus is the Son of God who died in our place as our substitute. He's t- that's the essence of the faith. And it, it, it's, it's guarding that, proclaiming that there's one God, one faith, one spirit, one baptism, Right? Very clear. There is clarity in the midst of striving for unity. The apostles preached this message, and by hearing and believing this gospel, people became members of the church with one another. This is the unity that was found in the early church, and it was founded on a common commitment to the truth. We're talking about the kind of really core essence of the gospel here. Um, a couple things, there's, there's a lot of things that kind of it seems in our, in our time right now are a little bit up for grabs theologically. Um, we're going to talk in a little bit about open-handed issues and closed-handed issues or secondary issues and issues of first importance. And we always want to know, discern, okay, what's, what are issues of first importance that are in the clenched fist? Like this is what the essence of Christianity is and we cannot let it go or we sell the farm, right? This is what it means to truly be a Christian. We can't touch 
the makeup of what that means, right? The essence of the gospel. And then there are these open-handed things. But some of what seems like close-handed issues are always being pressed, like the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Some would call that divine child abuse. Some would call that Jesus simply being an example on the cross towards us. And in some spiritual way, we are to take up our crosses and following him and not say that the, the, the literal penalty for our sins was paid, that it really was substitutionary. So uh, others will say uh, around the issue of hell, like who wants to talk about hell? Who loves the doctrine of hell, right? We don't. It's a difficult doctrine, and yet it's um, so clearly articulated through the pages of Scripture what happens if we say hell isn't essential? Hell is, 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 is a secondary thing. We don't need to talk about it. We don't even need to believe it exists. Well, see, the reality is we need to strive for unity, but we need to hold things in that closed hand that, 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 that are really important. So if we were, like, so hell, for example, what did Jesus experience on the cross? We need to answer that question. What was the atonement for we need to answer that question. What is the benefit of the atonement for those who believe? What did it earn them? What did it save them from? What is the judgment of God that is warned about throughout the Bible, if not hell? See, the doctrine of hell, unpleasant as it is to look at, plays a central role in defining the gospel. Remove the doctrine of hell and the gospel changes. So I'm just giving you one example right here about the fact that, yes, at every turn, let's strive for unity, but never on the back of watering down the truth that God has made clear in apostolic teaching, in what we have in our Bibles, in what we know the, the, the gospel proclamation to be. Again, there's a very real temptation to compromise the truth to be unified. We have to be utterly committed that our unity doesn't come from de-emphasizing the truth. Our unity comes from emphasizing it in, in, in striving to have a deep, common faith in Jesus, not faith light for the sake of friendly chats. Okay? Second, the unity of believers share... Sorry, the unity believers share is not uniformity, rather a common unity in diversity. I could pull this from a few different places in our text this morning, but let's look at verse 22. That they may be one, Jesus prays, even as we are one. Jesus praying to the Father saying, make them one like we're one. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? We use the word Trinity to describe the Godhead. One God in three persons. This is what we believe. The God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe this to be true, that God eternally exists as three persons, each fully God, and yet there is one God. So in the Trinity, we see both oneness and distinction. The role of the Son is not the role of the Father, nor is the role of the Father the role of the Holy Spirit, and yet there's one God. The Trinity, distinction, and yet oneness. What is true of the Trinity in that regard is also true of the church, that we are one body with many Members. So is there oneness? Yes. Is there distinction and diversity of sorts as well? Yes. I think Paul's favorite metaphor to, or um, analogy for this in his writings was the fact that the church is the body of Christ, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, head of the body, and we as the church are many members. 
Fingers are different than elbows, and elbows are different than feet, and you know, all those kinds of things. Eyes are different than noses, right? But they all make up the body, and so this is a helpful analogy in this regard. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, there would be, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Sadly, I hear this from time to time about people who have been in church for a while and they say, I don't fit here. I don't belong. And, you know, as we talk about that, I ask, well, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Do you believe that every person who's, you know, believes in Jesus should be a part of his body? Like many, right? Yeah, I do. But I just, and I think what they're getting at, where the angst is in that, is it's like, man, everybody seems to be an eye and they're advocating that everyone else be like an eye. But I'm a tooth. <laughs> it's like, our unity is not premised on our uniformity. Our unity is premised on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do we have them in common? Like, do we have a deep-seated belief that, yes, Jesus saves? Jesus is my Savior. Then, then we, we are grafted into the body as the people on the planet who believe that to be true, and we are called to unity and in fact, I think a rigid push for uniformity doesn't breed unity. It breeds disunity. A rigid push for uniformity that, that we look a particular way in terms of our, our distinctives and our diversities. Let me, let me expand on what I mean a little bit by that. Because I'm not talking, we've already talked about the truth needing to be held. Earlier this week, we had a staff day, a staff retreat day. We have a staff meeting every Tuesday, but a couple times a year, we like to have a full staff day. Uh, it kind of bonds us together a little more. We have a little more time to work on a few things together. Um, we can haze the newbies. Jason, has the Sharpie come off yet? Off your... Um, so, no, it's just great it, it's a, to just grow as a team. And one of the things we did this last Tuesday was we did this, this Enneagram uh, kind of personality test stuff where you kind of figure out which, which of the nine personality types there are. I mean, there's all kinds of things like this, the Berkman or the Myers-Briggs and all that kind of stuff. We use the Enneagram and there's these nine personality types. And it was kind of fascinating. It was really fun. And there were lots of laughs and stuff as well because you start to see that like, oh man, it's so pegs like certain members of our team, right? The peacemakers are nines. And it's like, oh, you totally are, right? You always do that, right? And so it's just really neat. And we see in all of these personalities, just the real gifts that they are, like, they, 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 they contribute so well um, to our team, to our church, right, to relationships. We need the roundedness of personalities. There's also a shadow side to all of these personalities, right, weaknesses, blind spots, and helpful to identify those and those kinds of things. And it's helpful that we're not all exactly uniform because if we all were one way, we'd all have the same blind spot. We wouldn't be able to help each other and yada, yada, yada. Of course, we can bring the layer of, of our Christian faith into this and the fact that the Holy Spirit um, dispenses the gifts of the Spirit as he chooses, as he wills, as he desires. And so we have these various personalities and we have varying gifts 
that it, all of these things together make up this, the, the beautiful right, diversity which is the church. It's a really great gift. I mean, the same is true of marriage, right? It says in the scriptures of, of marriage that the two shall become one flesh, two people should become one. And yet in the midst of a marriage, I mean, we all know this, if you're in a marriage or you observe marriage, there's, there's distinction within that marriage, right? Not only is there the husband and the wife, but there's also the personalities he has, the personalities she has, the gifts she has, the gifts he has, and all of that. And last night we were hanging out with some friends and one of our friends recommended that, that Emily and I should, oh, you need to watch this movie. It's so, so good. And it's a war movie. And I just knew right away, Emily and I aren't watching that together. She doesn't watch war movies, right? And so um, there's this, like, and, she, and I looked over at her, and she's like, yeah, that's not happening, right? We're not doing that together. And that's fine. That's why I have a friend or two in my life, and we, I can do that stuff with. Um, and so we find out in marriage, right, there are these negotiables and these non-negotiables. So in Christian marriage, right, there's these non-negotiables, which are, man, Jesus is the priority in our individual lives and in our marriage, um, that we are um, committed to this thing, even through the real, real thick of it, like a lifelong commitment. Like we're, that's a non-negotiable. Um, the sanctity of marriage, a commitment to the purity of the marriage. Like this, this, this is a non-negotiable, going into marriage. This is covenant stuff, right? I'm not going to cheat on you. We're going to agree that you're not going to do that to me, right? That, that, these are the non-negotiables in marriage. And then there's the negotiables, like I said, about watching them. interests, when Emily and I talk about the news, we start to talk about social issues and we start landing in different places and start to look with cynicism at the other at how wrong they are about what they think about this issue, right? Oh, I wish you understood this like I do. And all the, like back and forth and just, right? Because why? But those are negotiable. We can do that. And what actually makes, makes healthy marriages, I think, really beautiful and helps them display the gospel in one way is to say, in these negotiable things, we're going to celebrate our differences. We're going to love each other through it and commit to unity, right? These, like, there, there's something about that, like, oh, you don't think what I think, and now what we, we can't be to get. No, there's a beauty in the diversity of these things. The key, whether it be as a church or in marriage or as a staff team, the key, celebrating our diversity, loving each other in the midst of our differences, and having commitment to unity. We celebrate the diversity. Make, Jesus is praying, make us one. Make, make the church one like we are, Father. It's the, it's the prayer that you see this Trinitarian relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit in the Gospel of John. Different tasks, they are one. So it ought to be celebrated in the church. Third, the unity believers share is not agreement on preferences, rather a common passion for the mission. This appears multiple places in our text. Verse 21, that they may all be one. And the question is, okay, why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, that they may, be, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me. Unity, the unity believers share is not agreement on preferences, rather a common passion for the mission. What's the focus here? The focus here is that the people of, is the people of God engaged in the mission of God. That's the focus here. The people of God, unified front, carrying about, carrying on the mission of God. I've noticed something about my boys. My youngest son, Walker, turns six tomorrow. His older brother, Boston, is eight. 
And what I've realized is that um, when they get bored, they turn on each other. Uh, this happens all the time. And I never had a brother, so I didn't realize that turning on each other meant like punches, like blows and kicks and all that kind of stuff. They just really beat on each other. It's like really intense. And it only happens when they're bored. Like when minutes earlier, they're like, Dad, can I watch a show? And I say, no. Then they walk in and they're bored, twiddling their thumbs, so they just kick each other. You know, like that's what happens is it's in their boredom, they fight. Earlier this week, uh, and I, I despise it, and uh, earlier this week, they um, decided, though, that they were going to build like this mega fort in our living room with like every blanket from every bed in our house and use all the pillows from every room. And for me, being OCD about cleanliness and everything in its right place as I am, this was like really hard for me as a father, but like they were so cute about it. They were just working together. Boston was like, Walker, we need the pillows from mom and dad's bed. He's like, okay, I'll get them. I'm like, what? You guys are working together? This, I don't, I'm unfamiliar. What? So, so just letting them do this and building this massive fart. What? Uh, fart. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> that as well, to be honest. That's another thing about having the boys. Um, but uh, no, just building this massive fort and just working together. Why? Because they have this goal that they have in common. The church is exactly the same way. Find a church that's turning on, its, on each other is, is typically a church that's not lifting its gaze from one another and their problems, right? But when we fix our eyes on the common gospel, the common mission that he's given us in the world to be salt and to be light, to be a witness collectively, corporately, and individually, to be in on that together, so fixated on the mission that God's given us, it's, it's saved, it, there's very little time for. So I saw them walking into a rated R movie. Do you think that their ministry partnership should be stripped? I don't, I don't even know if they're Christians. Like we, the only time we start to have those like rose conversations about really like, like the judgmental, like looking at each other, like tearing each other down is when we have stopped looking to Jesus and started critiquing one another. One of the challenges and blessings the church has always faced is that included in its membership are the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, the old and the young, adults and children, singles and families, the conservatives and the radicals. People from many nations are Christians, introverts and extroverts, and those of every tem uh, temperament are Christians. That is a wonderful attribute of the church. It does require that we learn how to live with differing convictions on issues uh, Paul would call liberty or charity. Romans 14 is really helpful on this. When Paul is speaking to the Romans, writing to the Romans, he brings up three live issues for them at that time. Primarily, he's talking about food and days. Um, he also talks about drinking, like alcohol. Um, he's talking about these live issues and how we ought to treat one another in the church. And so these are really issue, uh, issues of preference or, or conscience or secondary issues. When it comes to the food um, that people were consuming, some people um, were, were Jews who had become Christians and they still had an issue of conscience around food that had formerly in their minds or continued to be uh, things they could not eat, like pork. And so it would be an issue of conscience for them and they wouldn't want to eat it, whereas others felt the freedom in Christ to do that because of the way that Jesus has fulfilled the law and all of that. And so there was this not only debate about whether they could eat certain meat that was sacrificed to idols or that was, had been deemed unclean and all that kind of stuff, 
Um, but, but they would actually, it would actually be troubling if fellow believers would partake when they wouldn't. And how, how do you deal with that? When it comes to days of the week, there were those who kept the, the, the traditional Sabbath of Friday night to Saturday night, whereas there were those who, because Jesus rose uh, uh, on Resurrection Sunday, that they moved that Sabbath keeping to Sundays. And, and, and others would say, well, Jesus was the fulfillment of the Sabbath and fulfilled it in such a way that I can honor it as a model for rest, but I don't particularly need to abide by the, the, the Sabbath laws and so on. And so these were very live issues at that time. And Paul writes in the midst of that, verse 14 of Romans 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. Really, Paul's giving the answer to say, like, don't worry about what you eat. But he goes on to say, that's not where he's finished. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. If it's an issue of conscience because of your faith not to eat it, don't be pressed to eat it or don't let someone press your conscience on that. It isn't right to eat if it goes against your conscience. So now it adds complexity to it. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, the true beauty of having liberty is both the freedom to enjoy these liberties in light of the gospel, but also to lay them aside for the sake of the gospel. Paul did both. Paul can say that nothing should be refused, but that everything should be received with thanksgiving. In 1 Timothy 4, 4, he says, For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it was, is received with thanksgiving. But in the same breath, he can also say that he would be okay with never eating meat again. 1 Corinthians 8, 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So in that instance, we need to be careful not to shipwreck the faith of others by how we engage liberties around others. I'm getting at our interactions around what we would call the open-handed secondary issues. We've talked about the clenched fist, the closed hands around the gospel and anything that would alter that. The open hand is the secondary issues and the preferences that we often put there as being things that we need to be really gracious with and not be overly concerned with our liberties with them so much as what is charitable to our brothers and sisters that might struggle around them. Not convincing our friends who have an issue of conscience around going to a certain movie. Oh, you should come. Come on, you're free in Christ. Like, it's just not helpful. It's not charitable. It's not loving. Someone struggles with alcohol. It's not charitable to talk about the fact that there's freedom to do it. Well, that, that's probably not helpful to that brother or sister to do that. We need to be mindful of our unity, striving in the faith to be for unity. The gospel was big enough to bring Jews and Gentiles together, which is astounding. In the early church, the gospel brought Jews and Gentiles together, which if you read the whole Old Testament and then you realize that that happened next, it's astounding. We should be able to figure out drums or no drums. Hymns or modern choruses or a blend of both. We should be able to figure out chairs or pews, suits or jeans, Makeup or no makeup, homeschool or public school, homeschool or Christian school. It's always homeschool against somebody, right? Uh, smoking or non-smoking, or in other words, uh, Dutch or Mennonite, right? So there's that one. <laughs> service times, service times. 
Small joke. It's always fun. Uh, service times, right? Sunday morning's great. Doesn't have to be. King James Bible only. ESV Bible only. Really, anything but the message is your primary Bible. I'll just go on. <laughs> no, like these are preferences, right? Preferences. And then there are kind of some more complicated, sometimes challenging, like what we would call secondary theological issues, where like, really, like the Bible seems to be teaching around some of this stuff. We're not quite sure, though, how it should look. And so they're debatable matters. Mode of baptism, sprinkle, pour, immerse, infant, right, believer, end times, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. We'll find out when we get there. Uh, old earth, young earth, I guess the big question, did Adam ride on a dinosaur? Right, like these are secondary. These are secondary, not even secondary. <laughs> Election, God chose us. Arminianism, right, free will, I chose. Secondary. Interpretation of the Sabbath, like I talked about a little bit. bit. Is it fulfilled in Jesus? Should we keep a literal day? What should Sabbath look like? Secondary. Complementarity, egalitarianism, right? The, what should our leadership structure look like? What is the Bible teaching on this? Secondary. To say these are secondary issues doesn't mean they're not important. To say they're secondary issues doesn't mean we shouldn't care about them or even be passionate about them. You all know I'm passionate about a bunch of those. But to say they're secondary means that we should not break fellowship over them, should not deem someone an unbeliever, should not push for a 10,001th denomination, per se. And I really believe it's a great demonstration of the gospel to love one another, not when we agree on everything, but when we don't agree on everything, but to love each other in the gospel, with the gospel, anyways. A year and a half ago, if you've been at our church for a while, you'll know about this. We walked through, um, the lead team of our church had been walking through uh, how to function as elders and what it means to be an elder and um, just had this conviction that that meant male elders, that we wanted to see men and women flourishing in our church, using their gifts, including leadership gifts, men and women and everything like that, and, and yet at the same time reserving an office for sacrificial male-qualified elders, and that was very contentious. Secondary issue? Yes. Also um, contentious. And I've probably had more in, in those few weeks and months in that fall, more pastoral visits um, than probably in the rest of my time. Combined as a pastor, it was every day, multiple times a day, a lot of conversations. And that was a hard season in a lot of ways, a challenge for us as a church to be unified. But when I look back at the conversations in my office over and over and over again, the conversations that stand out to me are not the ones where someone was like, high five, I agree with you. We're not the ones where someone um, wanted to break fellowship. The, the conversations that, that stood out to me were where we disagreed theologically on what's, what we both deem as important but secondary but looked at each other and said, we're not going to break fellowship over this. We love each other. We love Jesus. We love the church. We're on mission together. That we could disagree and be so convinced and committed to that spoke just the gospel to me. It's, it's sung to my heart. 
That's why organizations like the Gospel Coalition exist. I'm, a, I'm a, on, on the council for the BC chapter of the Gospel Coalition, and, and really what that is is keeping, what, keeping the main thing the main thing. Tons of denominations that land on different places on issues like baptism and leadership and all kinds of stuff like that um, saying, yeah, but we can rally around the gospel together. We can be the church of Jesus Christ together on this. We can have the priority of the gospel on this. That's key. Look, it doesn't mean that these things don't matter, preferences and secondary issues, or that we don't have deep and even differing convictions around these things but that the common cause of the gospel is of first importance. And when we put our preferences in the right place, when we put secondary issues in their right place, when we remind one another, each other, ourselves of the priority of the gospel in our hearts, in our lives as a church, it fixates, it fixates our gaze from our differences onto Jesus and unites us around the things that truly matter eternally, here and now and for forever this common fixation on Jesus as believers. And as we fixate on Jesus, we fixate on the gospel mandate to go and to proclaim and for our unity to bear witness to the world that the gospel is true and that God dwells in and among us. Our unity of the faith and unity of the spirit exemplifies our oneness to the watching world. I'm not gonna pretend there's not like difficult, challenging stuff here. I've tried to lay some of it out, talk candidly with you about it. But Jesus prays that we would be one, that we would be a people sanctified, that we would be a people who come to faith and that we would be one so that the world might know that God sent his son to save sinners and we're included in that lot. I just want to draw out a couple things as we close and and start to uh, prepare our hearts for the communion elements, the table. There are two incredible truths that as I was studying, and I knew we were going to talk about unity this morning, that just sung to my heart about who God is. And let's just dwell on those for a couple of minutes um, as we prepare our hearts. The first is the love of God that's so on display. Jesus came to save us. That's why he entered the fray of, of, of sinful humanity, he came to die for us. And it's revealed here when Jesus prays in verse 23, I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. Jesus is praying that you loved them. He's declaring that God's love for us is the same love he has for his son. That's astounding. God loves us in exactly the same way he loves us. Christ. God loves you more than you can comprehend. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 3, you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that you may know something that surpasses knowledge. I just love that. What's the thing we should strive to know that surpasses knowledge? The love that God has for us. See, that's one of those things that fixes our gaze from our navels and each other's faults and fixes our eyes on Jesus. Oh, yeah. He loves with a tenacious love like that. The other is glory. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, Jesus says, I have given to them. 
There, what was the glory that Jesus had been given? It's not His eternal glory, His heavenly glory. It's a glory on earth, a proclaimer of God's Word, a displayer of God's character and ways. And not, His glory is not more clearly displayed than on the cross as He suffered and died, paying the penalty for our sins. His glory is there. That's character of God's stuff. God loves us so much that He lays His life down through His Son to pay the penalty for our sins. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because of the love of God and all that Jesus has accomplished for us, we are called to reflect that same glory. The glory that you have given me, I give to them, he says. And we are called to demonstrate that same love of God that God has in triunity, we are to demonstrate that love through our unity to the watching world. I would like to read uh, from 1 Corinthians 11 as I call the, the, the communion servers forward, our, our, our band forward. We're going to have a time of response here where you can sing, where you can come up if you believe in Jesus, if you consider yourself a, a part of the body of Christ, a member of that body. You've given your life to Jesus. Maybe you did that years and years ago. Maybe you did that this morning. Come receive. Come receive Christ's body given. Christ's blood shed. Look at what is written in 1 Corinthians 11 as we prepare. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you believe in Jesus, you're committed to being his. I invite you over the course of a couple songs to come up and receive the body and blood of Christ. We'll also have prayer team members in different parts of the room that find great joy in being able to lift your burdens, your cares, your worries up in prayer before the throne. And so let me pray, and then we'll respond in these ways. Jesus, thank you for what we are about to receive. You ask us to continue to do this because you want the, the heart of the gospel, the cross, your finished work at the forefront of our minds and hearts to recall all that you have done for us, your saving work, your saving love. Thank you that you would do that for us. Thank you that you pray for us. Thank you that you, even more than us, long for our unity. What a comfort that is as we strive for it. Lord, would you make us one? even as you and the Father are one. Thank you that you lay your life down, that we might live. In Jesus' name, amen.